All right, Luke 1. Last week we looked at the birth announcements for John the Baptist and Jesus. And for us, the pull away, we said with this idea of framework, the angel Gabriel to Zechariah, John's dad, to Mary, Jesus' mom. He gave them a framework for their life. Here's something about their identity. Here's their name. And here's something about what they're going to do, their calling, their destiny, however you want to phrase that. And both of those things for those guys really provided a framework for how they were going to live. And we said for us, moving into the new year, it's helpful to have that. If we want to be faithful and fruitful over time, it's helpful to have some sense of what God is doing now. And so we said over the next three to six months, the thing we're asking God is, what are you trying to do with me in terms of my character? How are you trying to make me more like Jesus? What are you trying to either put into me or take out of me to conform me into the image of Jesus? I want to know what that is so I can cooperate with you. Second thing we said is, and what are you asking of me? Where do you want me to serve? How do you want me to contribute to what you're doing in my community and in this world? That, what, what's the good work? What's the one thing that you want me to give myself to in service over the next three to six months? Is there anything special I need to do in recognition of or preparation for that? John, it was you don't get to drink alcohol your whole life. Is there something for me in, prepar- in preparation for recognition of what you're saying to me you're doing in my character or what you're asking me to do in my community that I need to build into my life? And the last thing we said was what does it look like for me to cultivate an ongoing relationship with the Spirit in those areas? We can't do spiritual work in our flesh, so am I cultivating a relationship with the Holy Spirit in terms of what God's doing in my character and what he's asking to do, uh, what he's wanting to do through me in the community. So that was last week. This week we're going to look at the birth of both John and Jesus. We're going to begin in verse 39. Just to let you know, I changed translations of the Bible. This is an English standard version, and that's what's going to be up on the screen. A lot of you all use an NIV. This is still the Bible. It just sounds a little bit different. And so you can either follow along with what's up there or you can read along uh, in your seat. In those days, Mary arose and went with haste into the hill country to a town in Judah. And she entered the house of Zechariah and greeted Elizabeth. And when Elizabeth heard the greeting of Mary, the baby leaped in her womb and Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit. And she exclaimed with a loud cry, blessed are you among women and blessed is the fruit of your womb. And why is this granted to me that the mother of my Lord should come to me? For behold, when the sound of your greeting came to my ears... The baby in my womb leaped for joy, and blessed is she who believed that there would be a fulfillment of what was spoken to her from the Lord. So just to remind you, we're six months into Elizabeth's pregnancy. Mary, the same angel that appeared to Zechariah, appears to Mary. Gabriel, you're going to be pregnant. So this is a couple of days to a couple of weeks after Mary gets this announcement that she's going to be pregnant. She leaves, it's about 70 miles to Elizabeth's house. Elizabeth is a relative, very unusual for a woman to travel on her own. But Mary does that. We don't know exactly why, maybe just because in this announcement to her, Gabriel says, your relative Elizabeth is pregnant as well. And so maybe she's going for support or just to see if we can put the pieces together of what God is doing. But she goes to see Elizabeth. As soon as Elizabeth hears Mary's voice, John, who's in her womb, kicks or leaps, whatever that means, and then Elizabeth, filled with the Holy Spirit, interprets that. We'll come back to that point in a minute. And then this is Mary's response to what Elizabeth says to her. And Mary said, my soul magnifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior. Why? Because he has looked on the humble estate of his servant. For behold, from now on, all generations will call me blessed. Why will they call me blessed? For he who is mighty has done great things for me, and holy is his name. And his mercy is for those who fear him from generation to generation. 
He's shown strength with his arm. He's scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. He's brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. He's filled the hungry with good things and the rich he has sent away empty. He's helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham and to his offspring forever. And Mary remained with Elizabeth about three months and returned to her home. Your Bible may call that the Magnificat. That's Latin for the first, that first word um, magnifies is Magnificat in Latin. My Bible just says it's Mary's song. So in response to what Elizabeth says to her, Mary sings this song. The theme to me is reversal. We see Mary saying God is turning everything upside down. He's chosen me. I'm nobody. I'm low on the totem pole. And he's chosen me to be the mother of his son. He's doing great things through me. He's feeding the hungry. The rich, he's sending away empty-handed. He's bringing down the mighty. He's raising up others like me who are low. As we read through Luke, you'll see this theme of reversal runs all the way through. Big deal for Luke that when God comes on the scene through Jesus, he runs counter to our expectations. He makes the first last and the last first. So now we're three months in. So Elizabeth is nine months pregnant. Now the time has come for Elizabeth to give birth, and she bore a son. Her neighbors and relatives heard that the Lord had shown great mercy to her, and they rejoiced with her. On the eighth day they came to circumcise the child, and they would have called him Zechariah after his father. But his mother answered, No, he shall be called John. They said to her, None of your relatives is called by this name. And they made signs to his father, inquiring what he wanted him to be called. And he asked for a writing tablet, and he wrote his name as John. And they all wondered, and immediately his mouth was opened and his tongue loosed, and he spoke, blessing God. And fear came on all their neighbors, and all these things were talked about through all the hill country of Judea. And all who heard about them laid them up in their hearts, saying, What then will this child be? For the hand of the Lord was with him. Remember, when the angel Gabriel appears to Zechariah in the temple and says, Y'all are going to have a son. Both he and Elizabeth are too old, or Elizabeth is too old to have children, and they've never been able to have children. The angel appears and gives him this pretty detailed account of what's going to happen, and his response is one of doubt. He says, give me a sign. How am I going to know that this is going to be true? We talked about that last week. And the angel says the sign is you're not going to talk for the next nine months. That's the sign. And so he's judged for that, and he's mute. The people assume he's deaf as well. There's no indication in the Bible that he was made deaf, just that he was made mute. And so he hasn't gotten to talk for nine months. And now when he finally says, yes, we're calling him John, we see that he's able to speak. And what we're going to read here in verse 67. So this is the first thing Zechariah has said uh, for nine months. And his father Zechariah was filled with the Holy Spirit. And prophesied, saying, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited and redeemed his people, and has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David, as he spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets from of old, that we should be saved from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us, to show the mercy promised to our fathers and to remember his holy covenant, the oath that he swore to our father Abraham, to grant us that we, being delivered from the hand of our enemies, might serve him without fear and holiness and righteousness Before him all our days. That's one sentence. So you don't get to talk for nine months. You've got to run on sentence. Is the first thing that you come out with. If you notice, all of that was spoken in the past tense. Uh, People call that the prophetic past. So it's something that is happening now or will happen in the future. But because it's been spoken by God, people are so confident that it will happen that they use past tense. 
And so that's what you see there. Zechariah is using a past tense verb saying, this is how confident I am that God is doing this in our midst. And now he shifts to future tense when he talks about his son, John. And you, child, will be called the prophet of the Most High, for you will go before the Lord to prepare his ways, to give knowledge of salvation to his people and the forgiveness of their sins because of the tender mercy of our God, whereby the sunrise shall visit us from on high to give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death to guide our feet into the way of peace. And the child grew and became strong in spirit, and he was in the wilderness until the day of his public appearance to Israel. So that's all we'll hear from John until he's about 30 years old. Now we'll fast forward six more months. In those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. This was the first registration when Quirinius was governor of Syria, and all went to be registered, each to his own town. And Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth, to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David, to be registered with Mary, his betrothed, who was with child. And while they were there, the time came for her to give birth. She gave birth to her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling cloths and laid him in a manger because there was no place for them in the end. So, according this, see that scripture, according to Micah 5.2, we see that the Messiah had to be born in Bethlehem. Both Mary and Joseph were from Nazareth. They had to get to Bethlehem, so there's this registration, this census. And so they have to go to Bethlehem, which is where Joseph was from. And we see that's the fulfillment of this Micah 5, 2. But you, Bethlehem, though you are small among the clans of Judah, out of you will come from me, one who will be ruler over Israel, whose origins are from old, from ancient times. So we see God working through really a secular government at that point. People who don't know the Bible, they're not concerned with Messianic prophecy at all. He's working through a secular government to accomplish his purposes. Verse 8, in the same region... There were shepherds out in the field, keeping watch over their flock by night. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were filled with great fear. And the angel said to them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling cloths and lying in a manger. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of heavenly hosts praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. When the angels went away from them into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, Let us go over to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has made known to us. And they went with haste and found Mary and Joseph and the baby lying in a manger. And when they saw it, they made known the saying that, that had been told them concerning this child. And all who heard it wondered at what the shepherds told them, but Mary treasured up all these things, pondering them in her heart. And the shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all they had heard and seen as it had been told them. At the end of eight days, when he was circumcised, he was called Jesus, the name given him by the angel before he was conceived in the womb. Again, with Jesus' birth, we see this idea, this theme of reversal. So we have the King of Kings, Lord of Lords, Son of God, born to a nobody in a very small town, in a cave, and placed in a feeding trough for animals. And the first people who are told are shepherds who are considered dishonest and unclean. Whoever God's PR firm was, they probably need to find another one. That's not how we would announce this at all. But again, as we look at the life of Jesus, we'll see that God is constantly running against the grain, making the high low and the low high first last and the last first. And we see that's how Jesus 
came into the world. As I look at this, you may see other things. Um, one thing in particular that jumped out at me when I look at the birth announcement, but particularly when I look at the birth of both John and Jesus, is the main characters involved, Zachariah and Elizabeth and Mary. They all have a perspective on life that I'm going to say is grounded in the Word slash inspired by the Spirit. Grounded in the Word slash inspired by the Spirit. And that perspective determines how they view the circumstances in their life. And the place where I'm going to encourage and challenge us is that same perspective is not only available for us, God expects us to take it on. So let's look at that real quick, this idea of being grounded in the Word. So Zechariah, the beginning of his prophecy, those first two, the first two-thirds that I said were in the past tense, we'll see that up on the screen here, in yellow, those are the Old Testament references. So Zechariah is an older guy, he's a priest, so what he does, for, he does God for a living. And so we may assume that when it comes time for him to say something, when it comes time for him to interpret events, he'll do so through the lens that he knows, which for him is the Old Testament. He knows God, he knows how God has acted in the past, and so he understands what's going on now as through that lens of who God is and what God has done. Let's see that next one, Mark. This is Mary's song. So this is, there's at least 15, there's actually more, I just couldn't fit any more on the screen. There are 15 Old Testament references. Mary is 12 or 13 years old. She's not a priest. She hasn't been doing this that long. But what this says is Mary is steeped in, saturated in the Old Testament. She knows who God is, and she knows how he works. And so when this angel appears to her, she's got a grid, a framework, to interpret what's going on. Very interesting for someone that young to have that level of understanding and comprehension. Again, it's not just professional priests. Mary, as a 12 or 13-year-old girl, has that same depth, um, same grasp of who God is and how God works. And that, again, colors how they see everything. This idea of being inspired by the Spirit. This Zechariah, the second part of his prophecy, is present and future-oriented towards his son. It's based on what the angel has said to him. He expands on that a little bit. This is, boy, this is what you're going to be. We don't necessarily get into predicting the future now, but I do want you to see how Elizabeth responded to Mary. So Mary comes in. Again, she's 12 or 13. She's probably less, she's for sure less than a month pregnant, so she's not showing at that point. She hasn't posted on Facebook that she's pregnant. Elizabeth doesn't know. Mary's not yet married, so there's no reason for Elizabeth to assume that Mary's pregnant. And what's the first thing she says? Her baby, John, kicks, leaps, and she says, Blessed are you among women, and blessed is the fruit of your womb. How does she know she's pregnant? There's no outward indication that Mary's pregnant. She hasn't got any advanced word that Mary's pregnant. Mary hasn't told her that she's pregnant. I think what happened, it says there, she's filled with the Holy Spirit. Then she says that. I think the Holy Spirit has given her some information. In 1 Corinthians 12, this passage on spiritual gifts, Paul talks about words of knowledge. It's information that we get from the Lord that we couldn't get otherwise. I think there's a, that's an example of that. Elizabeth knows Mary's pregnant with, because God tells her, not for any other reason. And then she interprets what that means. What does she say about that? Why is this granted to me that the mother of my Lord should come to me? She gets that whoever, whatever Mary, whoever is Mary is pregnant with, very important. 
she says, that's my Lord in your belly. So she's got some understanding there. God, in that flash of a moment, has given her inspiration. This is what's going on. Mary's pregnant, and she's pregnant with somebody really, really special, really, really important. That's Holy Spirit inspired. And so we see with Zechariah, Mary, and Elizabeth, their perspective is grounded in the Word. They know the Old Testament. They know who God is, and they know how he works. And it's also inspired by the Holy Spirit. Here's something fresh, something new right now, Elizabeth. This is what's going on right now. Zechariah, here's what your boy's life is going to look like playing forward. And so we have both of those things coming together in their perspective, and that, that, those are the lenses through which they view their circumstances. And what I want to say to you is those are the lenses through which you need to view yours as well and through which I need to view mine. I need to view my circumstances through glasses that are grounded in the Word slash inspired by the Spirit. It's interesting. In John 9, Jesus says this, As long as I am with you, qualifier, as long as I am with you, I'm the light of the world. He's not with us now. He's seated at the right hand of the Father. What does he say in Matthew 5, I think it's 17? You are the light of the world. He's passed the baton to us. He's gone from being the light of the world to saying, now you're the light of the world. What does light do? It illuminates. And that's a, we have a responsibility and a privilege there to provide illumination, to help shine in the darkness, to provide interpretation, to provide commentary, if you like that, to provide understanding for circumstances. What many of us do is rather than looking at our life through the lenses of grounded in the Word, inspired by the Spirit. So this is who God is, and this is how He works. And I'm going to receive my circumstances and process and interpret them through those glasses. What I do is I put my circumstances on as glasses, and then I interpret God through that lens. And so I say, Micah Winkle wasn't healed last week, so I'm looking at, well, did God not, does he not care? Is cancer stronger than God? Did we not pray hard enough? Did we not have enough faith? Like, I start looking at God through those lenses Instead of saying, no, no, none of that is true. We know God is a healer. He says he is. He says if you have faith as small as a mustard seed, we have that. We came to him in faith and asked and said, God, do this. That's faith. Expressing trust. How do we express trust? By praying. We did that. And so we're not going to flip and say we're going to look at our God through our circumstances. We're going to look at our circumstances through the lens of who God is and how he works. Tina did that. She's in Guatemala, and she sees this, and rather than looking at it and say, oh, those poor ladies, or they just don't know any better, or this is a backwards country, or those people treat their women so poorly, rather than doing any of that, she said she got angry because she knows those women are created in the image of God. Therefore, they have worth and dignity. He formed and knit them together in their mother's womb, Psalm 139. This is not what their life is supposed to look like. And so she looked at those circumstances through the lens of who she knows God to be and how she knows God to work. And you can do the same thing. It takes a little discipline and intentionality on our part, but it's something that's available to all of us. I don't care if you can give me chapter and verses on the Bible. You can Google that. What I want to know is, do you know God? The way to know him is to immerse yourself in the word. Again, you don't have to be able to quote verses back. But there's a sense of knowing the person who wrote the book. As you read through it and spend time in it, you'll you'll begin to get a sense of who he is and how he works. And how he worked 
is how he works. He hasn't changed. He's consistent over time. That's why we have, he's given us a record here. here. You can expect me to act, to act this way. I was just, I am just, I'll always be just. You can expect that. I was merciful, I am merciful, I'll always be merciful. You can expect that. And so what that gives us the privilege and the opportunity to do is to be people who provide light, who provide perspective. There are a lot of people who get paid a ton of money to say nothing all the time. They're on the radio and they're on TV all the time. They have nothing to say at all. They have no clue. They just blather on. What you have the privilege and the responsibility is to say, no, that's time out. Here's the deal. This is, let me tell you, there's only two kingdoms. There's a kingdom of light and there's a kingdom of darkness. Let me explain what's going on in France to you. Let me tell you that. You can do that. Let me explain what's happening in your family situation right now. You, like, you can do that. Someone came up to me after the first service and said he felt like that was a strong word for us as a church. We see ourselves as Mary with this little bitty church on the corner. And we are in a lot of ways. But God has given us this privilege and responsibility to, to say, here's what's happening. Let me provide an accurate interpretation of what is truly going on. It doesn't mean that you always speak in Bible verses. For sure you don't speak in King James English. What it means is you get it. And you look at life through the lens of who you know God to be and how you know God to act. And then you're willing to say something. Zachariah said something. All of these people are gathered around and he says, let me tell you what's going on. This is why we're naming him John. Mary said something. Elizabeth said something. For us, privilege and responsibility to say something, it will make you different. And for some of us, we don't want to stand out. We just want to nod along and just kind of go along to get along. It's not what we see here. We see guys saying, time out. Let me tell you what's happening. Some of you have the ear of decision makers. This is for everybody, but particularly for you. If you have the ear of decision makers, this is your gift to them. You get to say, here's what's actually happening. Let me give you an accurate interpretation of the circumstances. Everybody is saying the sky is falling. Let me tell you what's really happening. They're all telling you the house is about to burn down. Let me tell you what's going on. Or the opposite. God rails against people in the Old Testament. You're saying peace and prosperity, and I'm t- it's not going to be that way. This is what God is doing. This is not for the super spiritual. This is not for graduate level Christians. This is for anyone who's following Jesus. You know his voice. He speaks to you, and you can know what's happening. God, tell me. I need to know. We have two kids that are not under our feet anymore, a high schooler and a middle schooler. There's all kinds of things that we don't know, what, we don't know what's said at the lunch table. And we can say, God, you've got to let me know what's going on at Marietta High School. I'm not there. I've got to know. What's happening? You've got to tell me what is going on at Marietta Middle School. I need, some in, I need what Elizabeth had. I need a flash so I know how to raise these kids. You can ask for that, and he'll share with you. He's not going to write a book for you. It's going to be a word, like literally one word that pops into your head, a feeling that you may get. God's not going to move your mouth for you. It's not how it works. You're going to have a thought, and you're going to think, man, that was good. That's better than me. It's probably him. 
And you grab onto that. And then you say, who's this for? What do you want me to do with this? You're going to go into a meeting and beforehand you're going to pray real quick, God, anything for this person that I'm saying, I don't care what you're talking about. We're making it, we're doing a deal or whatever, anything for this person. Sometimes, nothing. Just do your thing. Other times, you'll have a thought and you'll just say, hey, I was thinking about you today. Does this mean anything? I was thinking about you. I wanted to encourage you with this. This is from 1 Corinthians 14, 3. Let's see the next one. I went out of order. Sorry, Mark. Way out of order. Really out of order. Did I I put it in there? Oh, come on. It was in there when I did it. Here's 1 Corinthians 14, 3. They must have cut it at 9 because I didn't use it. I went out of order then too. On the one hand, the one who prophesies speaks to the people for their upbuilding and encouragement and consolation. Those three words, your Bible might say strengthening and encouragement and comfort. First Corinthians 14, 3. That's what I'm saying you have the privilege and the opportunity to do. Um, upbuilding, or your Bible might say strengthening, that's, that's edifying. Think of um, the idea of increasing someone's capacity to do something. That's what you're doing. I'm creating space internally for you to grow into who God wants you to be. That's what strengthening is. Um, Your Bible might say encouraging. That's exhorting, spurring one another on to love and good deeds. That's from Hebrews. You have the opportunity to do that. Your Bible may say comfort. Mine says console. 2 Corinthians 1 talks about us being comforted by God. Why? So that we can then comfort others in any affliction that they're in. That's what it look that's what that's what I'm talking about. I'm not talking about predicting the future for people. I'm talking about strengthening them. I'm going to build you up. I'm going to increase your capacity to be the man or woman that God wants you to be. I'm going to encourage you. I'm going to spur you on to loving good deeds. I'm going to tell you what you can do, not what you can't. I'm going to see the things in you that are gold and I'm going to say yes to that. Yes. And I'm going to comfort you when when you're when you are busted up and it doesn't work, I'm going to comfort you with the comfort God has comforted me with in the past. That's what I'm talking about. You can do that. That is available to you. Soak in the word. And I mean that. Don't just blow through that. You can read the Bible in a year. I've done that. I'm not against that at all. I'm honestly like there's no ribbon at the end of that. Like God is not going to give you anything on December 31st. He's not. But you can do that if it helps you. What I want you to do is, like, I want you to get it. I want you to know who he is. I want you to be able to tell me, this is the heart of God. He seeks and saves those who are lost. Why? But I see it in Luke 15. He goes after a lost sheep, and he goes after lost coins, and he goes after a lost son. That tells me. That's what he does. He seeks and saves those who are lost. Way more important for you to get that element of who God is than to just make a check and say, I read my four chapters today. Again, I'm not against reading the Bible in in a year. What I'm for is reading it with the idea of saying, God, reveal to me, show me, teach me, form me, shape me. i got to know who you are. I need to know how you work because it's all spinning out there. And you're always the same. And so I've got to know, what are you doing out there? How does any of this make sense? It's difficult to think a book that was written thousands of years ago can make sense of that, but it can because he's the same. And then again, being open, God, I, I, I need something fresh. I need something new. This is a situation that's not in the Word. I need 
It's spirit-inspired revelation on this. That's available for you. Those slides that Mark showed earlier that I went out of order on. What they say, Matthew 12, Jesus says, what's in you comes out of you. And we see that with Mary and with Zechariah. That's what was in them. And so when they spoke spontaneously, that's what came out of them. And you, your heart can be so formed and shaped by the word and by the spirit that that's what comes out of you. It'll come out in your language. It won't come out in their language. It'll come out sounding like you. But that's what's on the table. Real quick, I've went way off. Last thing, I'm going to do this in two minutes, so I'm not going to do it justice. The second thing you see here, and I do want to hit this just because I want to have an opportunity to pray for people who are wrestling in this area, joy throughout Luke 1 and 2. Because they have this perspective, because they're grounded in the Word and inspired by the Spirit, Zechariah, Mary, Elizabeth, those who are associated with them, they all respond joyfully. Joy is not... It's deeper than an emotion. There's an emotional expression of joy, but it's deeper. It's a state of great delight that's based on your that's based on your relationship with God. And you can see some things about joy there in the New Testament. The reason I can say joy is not an emotion because God doesn't command us how to feel. It has an emotional expression for sure. God says, or Paul says, to be joyful in all circumstances. That would be masochistic if it was when you're being, when you're suffering to somehow be joyful. Like we couldn't do that. But it's this state of great delight that's not based on my circumstances. It's based on my relationship with God. Let me give you a picture. I said this at nine. When I think of joy, the person who I think of, honestly, is I think of Bo Bryant. He is not boisterous at all. He is not boisterous, Bo, and he is not bubbly, Bo. But if you've ever been, and if you haven't, I'd encourage you to get, be around him. What you will see is underneath everything is there's this sense of great delight because for him... He's got that perspective. He has a grounded in the word, inspired by the spirit perspective, and he looks at life through those lenses. And so it keeps him in this place of hope. And it keeps him in this place that, of course, God can do. Of course, God's going to work. He never gets, he never despairs. I was telling, uh, he's been leading worship for us for seven years, but he started full time a year ago tomorrow. And we work in the same room. And so I'm around him a ton. And I told him this over Christmas. I've seen him not joyful two hours this year. That's it. Two hours. And we live across the street from each other. I don't know what goes on in his house. But from what I see, except for two hours. Once I had come back from a, short, from a mission trip to Nicaragua. Someone close to us had committed suicide. He had carried that for a week. And he said, I just got to vent. I got to unload. And the other time, we actually went to a, a trial, a probable cause hearing across the street. And, we, and it was gut-wrenching for us. And he came back, and it was the same thing. i got to process this out. Other than those two hours, I would say Bo's life is characterized by having a great delight, and it's based on his relationship with God. And I use him as an example because he's not a cheerleader. He's not bubbly. He's not... What he is is joyful. And I want to put that on the table for you. Regardless of your personality, your life should be marked by joy. This sense of great delight. Why great delight? Because you have a perspective that's grounded in the Word and inspired by the Spirit. And so that means you look at your life through the lenses of a God who's always good and who always wins. How can you not be joyful if you know you're in relationship with a God who's always good and who ultimately will always win? 
It's not based on your circumstances. There will be times when you're giddy with happiness, if that's your personality. Even if it's not, joy is on the table for you all the time. Let's close with this. We have five minutes. Bo, if you can come on back up. Be crying? Oh, my gosh. What are you going to do? Surrounded by sissies. Let's pray. I'm going to pray a general prayer. But before I do, I want to say specifically to three groups, I would love for you to come forward and let us pray with you. One, if you know you have the ear of decision makers, let us pray with you. That you will be a counselor in the true sense of the word. That you will provide perspective, interpretation, commentary on what's going on based on a grounded-in-the-word-inspired-by-the-spirit perspective. You may already be doing that. But if you've got the ear of decision-makers, whether that's formal or informal, please let us pray with you. I want to pray for any who struggle hearing God's voice. It's just a wrestling match for you. We want to pray that you would recognize the voice of God. You're his sheep, and he's your shepherd. The Bible says very clearly you know his voice. We want to pray for you to recognize that. And third, if you would say for whatever reason right now your life is not marked by joy. I'm not asking if you're happy. I'm asking if your life is marked. If you're, are you in a state of great delight that's based on your relationship with him? And if you would honestly say no, then let us pray with you. That's part of your birthright as a Christian. And we want to pray that your joy would be restored. So let me pray a general prayer, and then you guys can respond as you will. Lord, I thank you for the men and women in this room, and I thank you that you've called each of us to be light, and we want to do that in our homes, in our offices, in our community. We want to be people. We don't want to be know-it-alls. We're not asking to be the smartest guy in the room. What we're saying is, God, we want to know what you're doing And we want to interpret circumstances and events through the lens of who you are and how you work. And we want to have the boldness to do that. So God, I pray that we would be who we are. You've already said you are the light of the world. That's a true statement. And God, we want to live into that. And God, we want to be people who are marked by joy deep and abiding. And we want it to come out in all kinds of ways. Full of life. We want to laugh and we want to get excited. We don't want to be flippant at all. But we want there to be this deep undercurrent of joy in our life that when people see us, when people are around us, that's what they would pick up on. Because we're connected to a God who's always good and who ultimately wins. We would live in a constant state of joy. In Jesus' name, amen. You guys can stand. We'll have ministry teams here up in the corner. Bo's going to lead us in one song. And then we'll, uh, he'll dismiss us uh, when we're done.